following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Hey everybody, good evening and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Missed you guys last week. Uh, I have uh, was... Had a had a, a a nice break with my family, some good family time. We were uh, uh, we rented an RV and drove around uh, the woods and the coastline of Maine, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, uh, some adventures, uh, but uh, but but really fun. Um, and <laughs> yes, Stephen says the webcam definitely looks a bit crisper. It totally does. The other exciting thing that happened as soon as I got back uh, is that I got a new computer and it arrived. Um, so uh, I've been this week trying out my new system. I apologize if there are going to be any. Uh, there still may be some. Uh, uh, kind of glitches as I get things set up and organized properly here, um, but uh, but yeah, there should definitely be some some improvements. I'm hoping and certainly uh, more stability than my poor struggling old machine. Uh, so yeah, yeah, excited about that. Uh, really excited to get back to Morgoth's Ring discussions with you guys. It was hard to stop in the middle of uh, well, not even really the middle, of course, uh, near the beginning. Uh, of uh, of the Athrobeth, which really is one of my very favorite. Um, it's one of my very favorite things Tolkien ever wrote, to be perfectly frank. It's just both brilliant and gorgeous and sensitive. It is uh, really a very remarkable piece. Uh, and of course, we will certainly see tonight uh, the way in which it has grown out of the contemplations he's been doing. Um, to see him take all the thinking that he already did, the theological thinking that he'd been doing about Middle-earth, um, the specific sort of dealing with the metaphysics of uh, Elvish incarnation, right, with Hroa and the Fea and how that works, and then to begin uh, to apply that uh, to humans and to really be, to, to be working out this whole two-race system uh, that he had been, you know, sort of theorizing about, writing myths about from the very beginning. Um, the fact that he is now really, as far as we can tell, pretty much for the first time, really thinking through the full implications of what that means, right? Of elves and humans, you know, a world with elves and humans. And uh, really working through much more thoroughly, much more consistently than I think we ever see him anywhere else do. Um, the relationship between the theology of Middle-earth and Christian theology, um, it's, uh, the, and the results are, are really, I think, altogether remarkable. So, we're gonna get right back to that. I'm, I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna make fast progress. I I mean I have to admit it was really hard. You know, as I'm planning the passages for tonight, it's really hard to skip any paragraphs. Honestly, I mean, I don't we I don't want to spend the rest of the year on you know on Morgoth's Ring. We're already way over my original projection, uh, but. Um, uh, and I, you know, I have no regrets for the time that we've spent or that we are going to spend. But anyway, I'm, I'm, 
I, I'm I, a lot of people, James, have been teasing me that like, you know, I'm, I'm suddenly transforming Mythgard Academy into, uh, you know, something like the exploring the, the Lord of the Rings. And that's not true. It's really not true, <laughs> despite apparent evidence to the contrary. It isn't true. Uh, I, I only ask you to remember that I did out of the silent planet in five sessions. Right. Um, that's still the plan to, to, to still do those kinds of readings here uh, in the Mythgard Academy. But I don't apologize for taking longer with Morgoth's ring because um, there are things here as we enter into this, what I think of as the third phase of the history of Middle-earth, right? I mean, really the third phase of Tolkien's creative career. First phase being uh, before The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? When he was first, like his early mythology being the first phase. The second phase being the development of his main stories, right? Of his magnum opus of The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit really a springboard to The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then the third phase, which is the post-Lord of the Rings period, as he's continuing to think through things and his ideas are continuing to mature and he is sort of rounding out some of those stories in, in many ways and integrating them as we've been looking at, of course, with his mythology. This is such a... There's so much going on here, right? Much more than... There's much more to think about. We've seen, and I think you know, we encountered that in Sauron defeated uh, when we were doing the last volume uh, already. I mean, that was uh, dense in places, right? I mean, there were there were we spent some time there in Sauron defeated because we really needed to to kind of buckle down and try to follow his thinking. Um, he didn't. Okay, he didn't do this kind of thinking, this kind of world building. It's not what he was about as a storyteller in his early years. Uh, and so as, as much fun as it was to read through earlier drafts of things and, you know, be reading the Book of Lost Tales together and the Lays of uh, Beleriand and all that kind of stuff, um, that was really fun. But it was a very different kind of work, right? Um, we could kind of read passages and appreciate some of the, the, the things and the way that his thought was going and stuff. But um, he is really kind of ascended to this higher level of thought, right? This higher level of planning and, th and you know, philosophical and theological thinking. Um, he's doing world building on a much deeper level now uh, in this third phase. And it's it's it takes some time. It takes some time. So there we go. So that's so it's not just that I'm sliding into uh, uh, into the uh, the you know like uh, the 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 patterns of exploring the Lord of the Rings accidentally or you know uh, through some kind of inertia or something like that. I am slowing down because this stuff takes some time to think through, um, uh, but uh, we will uh, we will keep uh, we will keep going. Um, anyway, so. Uh, Tomas says, uh, was world building a thing in literature in general at the time Tolkien was doing this or not yet? Uh, well, um, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. On the one hand, on the one hand, I don't think it was a thing people talked about all that much. Um, I don't, I'm not sure the history of that phrase. Yeah, Nancy says it depends on what you think world building is. Exactly. I mean, goodness knows there were many people who were inventing fantasy worlds and science fiction worlds, you know, it's, uh, fantastical worlds, which were uh, very highly realized. It's not like Tolkien invented that process. Um, uh, nor even that Tolkien is the first person to be asking such questions about this stuff. But 
But do I think that a lot of the the fact that world building is discussed as a, um, you know, when you talk to writers, right, who are writing fantasy or science fiction, the fact that world building is such an important topic for them, right, that it's it's sort of almost a kind of a given, right, that if you're going to write this kind of story, you know, good world building is something that you really have to do. I do think ultimately that that uh, that there is the debt to Tolkien there, mostly just because the Lord of the Rings has been so successful. And as people, you know, over the last, you know, uh, 70 years have been saying, why, you know, what is it that makes the, you know, wherein lies the enduring appeal and the uh, uh, the profound impact of these stories? Um, I think that the importance of world building has basically become much more, much more prominent. Um, but, um, anyway, so, so did he invent it? No, no, he certainly didn't invent it. But, uh, uh, but again, I do think that if it were not for Tolkien and the work that he did, uh, that it's not something that we'd be talking about in the same way that, uh, we talk about it now. Um, anyway, uh, okay. The first one announcement I want to make or remake, as I've mentioned it before, and that's about my shirt. Right? You see, I'm wearing my green dragon shirt. Let me stand up, get the full effect here, right? My uh, my great is our middle name. Uh, you can't see it because it's mirror reversed, I think, in the in the webcam. But um, uh, but anyway, this is uh, I, my my uh, my. My mom bought me a couple shirts off of our Signum store for my birthday this year. Last night, in exploring the Lord of the Rings, I wore my Balrogs Don't Have Wings shirt, which was my other present. Um, but um, uh, anyway, it's um, uh, it's it's this it, 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 has been really fun. Uh, so yeah, there's uh, we have um, uh, yeah here. Let me just paste this into the chat here. There we go. Good. Um, so yeah, that's the the direct link. Of course, you can always find um, you can always find the Signum store uh, by going to the uh, the Signum homepage. Now we have uh, uh, you know we have the link to it in the blog post on our website right now. Um, so anyway. Uh, the Signum store is a lot of fun. I talked about it before. I won't go into uh, too much more detail about it right now. Uh, but um, it's uh, I just commend it uh, to you because it is uh, it is a great deal of fun. Um, great. It's also there's also a link to it under the support menu in uh, on the on the Signum homepage. That's great. Um, Anyway, cool. So, just wanted to just wanted to share. I'm really loving my uh, my 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 uh, green great dragon uh, T-shirt here, uh, and uh, I was I also wore it today because I was seeing my mom is she's living out of town now, but she was back in town visiting. So I, you know, wore my new shirt that she gave me for my birthday to see my mom today, and I'm like, well, and I'll keep it on for uh, for class tonight to 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 show it off. Um, so anyway, it's pretty cool. This I this was one of the, as soon as we you know the the store was officially open, I was like, this is one that I definitely want uh, I, I, on a shirt uh, to wear. So just 
wanted to recommend it. For those of you who haven't seen it before, it's really, it can be a little bit confusing at first, but it's really cool. Like basically we have a whole bunch of designs and you can choose to get that design on like almost anything. There's like all kinds of clothing and there's uh, all kinds of objects like mugs and coasters and throw pillows and socks and uh, comforters and shower curtains and and stickers and phone cases and all manner of things um so uh, you just kind of go click on the design you want and then you can pick through all the different things that you can have it on uh and uh and that uh, you know i've been really pleased with the uh the quality of the stuff so far i have a few uh items that i've gotten from the store uh my cup from the Mythmoot store my travel mug from the Mythmoot store and uh my t-shirts and i got a face mask also a signum face mask so i got like the signum eagle across my face <laughs> now when i'm grocery shopping and all that kind of thing and uh, and yeah, Steven, the masks are super comfortable. I was really happy with that, actually. Most comfortable mask I've ever worn. So I uh, was, really, was really pleased with that. Anyway, just wanted to commend that to you. Signum, of course, uh, does receive a little bit of support every time uh, people uh, buy something from the store. It's not a whole lot, uh, but, but, uh, but, it's, but it definitely helps. Every, every bit helps. Uh, and so that's certainly... Uh, a really fun way that you can help to support Signum some is, uh, you know, getting some fun stuff uh, at the store. And also, I would want to say again, if folks have ideas uh, for things they would like to see on a shirt, you know, a, for new designs on shirts or on whatever, um, feel free to uh, let us know. We, you know, we've got this uh, uh, this idea. We had the concept for the green dragon. We, we wanted to have a green great dragon thing right uh and the idea of the uh the sort of the green dragon pub sign with the slogan great is our middle name underneath it uh was uh i think i think i think that was joe hoffman's idea right so it was another suggestion from one of our uh from a member of our community so uh really delighted to uh uh, get suggestions. If you have suggestions uh, for designs to see on our Signum merch, go ahead and post those. Uh, send them uh, by email to info at signumu.org uh, and we will we will get those uh, and always be happy to consider those. All right. So let's get back into the text because I have high ridiculously high, perhaps, ambitions uh, for how far I want to get here tonight. Um, and I want to start by going backwards just a tiny bit because it's been so long. Uh, so I'm starting with the with the, the slide that we finished with uh, last time because I wanted to make sure that we kind of get back into the flow of the discussion between Finrod and Athrobeth here. And Athrobeth. Finrod and Andreth here. Um Okay, so uh, this is Finrod uh, still trying to grapple with the idea, right? So uh, Andreth has said, yeah, no, we think that uh, we hold that humans were not originally intended to be mortal, right? Um, and he's kind of trying to cope with that, right? Trying to deal with that. Other creatures also in Middle-earth we love in their measure and kind, the beasts and birds who are our friends, the trees and even the fair flowers that pass more swiftly than men. Their passing we regret, but believe it to be part of their nature, as much as are their shapes or their hues. But for you, who are our nearest kin, our regret is far greater. Yet, if we consider the briefness of life in all Middle-earth, must we not believe that your brevity is also part of your nature? Do not your own people believe this too? 
and yet from your words and their bitterness, I guess that you think that we err. I think that you err, and all who think likewise, said Andreth. And that error itself comes of the shadow. So that would be a big yes that she thinks he errs, right? You can see his logic here, right? Um, and this makes perfect sense. Uh, you can easily imagine how the elves come to this conclusion. They observe that everything else, that the elves are seem to be unique in the world as far as they can see, um, as far as longevity is concerned, right? There are many other things that are native to Arda um, that, you know, whose nature is to be brief and to, to be there and to pass. And again, as he says, like, we regret that they pass, but it seems to be natural. So although they were surprised to dis you know, when they discovered humans to find that humans were mortal, right, that their lives passed quickly, it's not like swiftly passing lives was an unprecedented thing, right? Um, you know, you've got like the spectrum of length of life, right? Among all of these mortal things with like, you know, flowers and insects right on one end of the, some insects anyway, uh, on one end of the spectrum. And that, you know, going out to like, you know, beasts, some beasts and, and then some other plants and everything all the way up to, and, you know, humans kind of coming somewhere there in the middle and then others like even the dwarves, um, and, uh, and then, you know, trees that can last centuries and all that kind of thing. Um, so there's, there's all that there, right? Um, and um, so it makes sense. They're surprised because so far the elves were the only thing that were sort of set apart from that, right? And they also were the only children of Iluvatar that they knew, so it would it makes sense that they would assume, okay, so this this is a children of Iluvatar thing, right? So those creatures, the birds and beasts and plants who are not children of Iluvatar are fleeting, right? They live and they die, and that's part of how the nature of the world works. It's part of, of the world as it's constructed, certainly in Artemard at the very least, works. Um, but probably I think when he talks about to be part of their nature, he's not saying a part of the consequence of Morgoth's discord, of the marring of Arda, but a part of their actual natures, that that flowers would probably not have been eternal, even had Morgoth not marred Arda, right? Even in Arda unmarred, um, you know, chipmunks probably aren't going to live forever is, I think, what, what Finrod believes, what the elves believe, right? So here come the humans, um, also children of Iluvatar, but mortal, not unprecedentedly, right? Following the precedent of these other non, you know, these other creatures um, who might be, you know, who are their friends, right? And whom they love and care for, but... Uh, but here, you know, they were, Finrod speaks as if they, you know, they were ready to embrace humans as peers, essentially only to find that they seem to be kind of in this other, um, uh, in this other category, right? Um, now, Chris, uh, Chris here asks a great question. Uh, when do elves meet Ents, which appear to be maybe as long-lived as are they? Well, they certainly have met them. But of course, Chris, the real question is, when is Tolkien going to get around to 
reconciling that, right? Because of course, uh, Ents did not emerge until the writing. You know, Treebeard is the first Ent in more than one way, right? Uh, he is the first Ent, uh, historically speaking, from within the history of Middle, you know, within the world of Middle Earth. Uh, he's also the first Ent in the sense of the first Ent who emerged in Tolkien's imagination. There were no Ents in the stories. Uh, the concept of the Ents, of the Tree Men, uh, of the Giants. Um, that emerged during the writing of the Lord of the Rings. And those of you who did the uh, the Return of the Shadow and the Treason of Isengard will remember that emerging, how it moved from Tolkien's desire to actually include giants like normal, legit Jack and the Beanstalk giants in Middle-earth um, uh, and, you know, transformed into Ents by the time they got to Fangorn. Um, so... Chris, he's not done that yet, right? I, I have seen no evidence that he's yet really thought that through. Um, he's, again, he's thought through the longevity of the Ents, right? We know from the Lord of the Rings that Treebeard uh, is alive at this time, right? Like they could, they, you know, <laughs> Finrod and Andreth could like bring Treebeard into this discussion, theoretically, right? If they really wanted our class to go on forever. Um, but... Um, but but Tolkien seems to be not there yet. So that that's to me the really important question, Chris. I don't know yet. Um, I'm gonna so I'm gonna not answer that question just because we have no idea. We we know he will get around to it to some extent, right? We know that um, he is going to get there, um, and we know this because of course, and the story events is integrated into the published Silmarillion in the Avalay and Yavanna chapter, which is still not yet written as of this time, which remember is like late 50s, somewhere like in the, in the area of 1960 is when the Athrobeth is being written. Um, and so the, the Avalay and Yavanna chapter, the story of Aulay and the, and the, the making of the dwarves, that's not written yet. And of course the, you know, Yavanna's uh, envisioning of the Ents also not yet there. So that's to come still, right? As he begins to kind of work through both of the... So both of those two are questions. Right? You'll notice when I was just kind of laying out the sort of the spectrum of things and the longevity of things, Chris, you raised ends. I kind of briefly, cheatingly touched on dwarves, hoping nobody would ask about that, right? Um, like, well, hang on a second. Do they consider... Do the elves consider the dwarves children of Iluvatar? How do they fit in? How do they fit that in, right? Yeah, Tolkien hasn't answered that yet. Um, he will. Right as we see, he'll get around to answering both of those. Uh, and the Aule and Yavanna chapter uh, is really kind of a two birds with one stone kind of deal, right? As uh, because those are clearly two examples. We know he's already struggling with orcs, but dwarves and ints are still also not yet explained, right? So. We're just going to have to leave that one. We'll come back to it when he gets to it. Let's just deal with humans and elves for now. Um, anyway, so my larger point here is that this is perfectly logical, right? This makes sense. Um, and his concept that Andreth, you know, that the, the, you know, the traditions of the wise among men are just erroneous on this point. Notice he's not... He, Finrod is extremely gentle and diplomatic throughout this. Finrod has the opportunity, he has the excuse to be offended by Andreth on like many occasions during this conversation, right? She is uh, at least rude to him. 
um, if not actively insulting, right? She often goes out of her way to be abrasive and insulting to him during the, to him even personally during, and not exactly personally, she's not insulting him personally, um, but she is aggressive at many points during this uh, discussion. Um, and, uh, but we see him throughout being extremely patient, not only patient with her personally in the sense of not taking offense, not striking back at her, not calling her uh, on her uh, uh, on her rudeness to him um, and not you know, taking her to task for that or pulling rank or anything like that. It's not only that, but his assertions are extremely gentle, right? Extremely gentle. Um, and, uh, and I, I think, again, I think that we, that we see this here, right? The way that he's putting this, um, you know, he's, he's saying, okay, um, so this is what you think, right? You think that, um, uh, humans used to be immortal and that's very interesting, but, uh, here are all the reasons we have for thinking the contrary, right? And, you know, um, uh, notice his phrasing. Do not your own people believe this too, right? It isn't surely this is they like you didn't really mean it, right? When you said you thought that they were by nature immortal, right? Uh, before something happened. Um, but notice, and yet from your words and their bitterness, I guess that you think we err, right? Um, I observe that you not only disagree, but that you, ex you have bitterness about this, right? Uh, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I, I, I guess you're not on board with this, but I'm explaining our thinking anyway, right? And then again, she's like, no. Um, your error comes from the shadow. Ouch. Uh, and as I think I said before, uh, before uh, my vacation, um, that's a big statement to make. Right. Because most of his elvish lore is at least influenced by, if not actively derived from the Valar themselves. Right. Um, you know, personal instruction from the Valar who kind of ought to know a lot of these things. Right. Um yeah, as Josiah says, uh, if the Calaquendi wanted to know, they could have just asked Yavanna after all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, of course, they didn't encounter human mortality until it was already too late to ask Yavanna, right? So uh, they, it's not like they can just kind of phone her up from here, right, and figure that out. But yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly it. Um, now, uh, uh, George... Uh, says that, of course, some beasts do seem to be immortal. Huon comes to mind. Uh, is that because he was born in Valinor? Uh, presumably, yes. I mean, he's he's a hound of Valinor. Huon appears to be special even among hounds, um, even among Valinorian hounds. Uh, so I don't think that Huon is merely a typical example. Um, a more typical... Ex I mean, I don't know... Um, were the original horses brought over who were the fathers of the fathers of the Mayaris uh, among the Rohirrim? Um, were they immortal? Um, I don't know. I mean, is Huan even immortal? Do we know that for sure? I mean, long lived, no question, lives much longer than most dogs. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, has endured clearly for centuries, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, he's immortal. Um, but again, you'll notice that's a classic example, George, of a holdover from the time in which Tolkien was not thinking systematically like this, right? Um, he that that question about are all those beasts immortal? Just like you know, what exactly is what's who on story? I mean, like you know, ontologically speaking, right? Like, what is where does he come from? How does that happen? Is he an animal, and just an animal? So he's like a hound that might be found in Middle-earth, except he was born in Valinor, which makes him endowed with some kind of what? I don't even know. Like, do they just breed them brilliant, immortal, and awesome like that? And maybe they do, right? I don't know. Um, because Tolkien never answered that question. Um, the idea of... He is a hound who came from, you know, he's a hound of Orome given to Kelegorm uh, in Valinor and brought by Kelegorm to Middle-earth. Um, and therefore he is now this like godly hound among the creatures of Middle-earth. Um, that's just part of the mythology originally, right? The, the, the hows and the why-fors and the, and the, you know, the, the, the explanations he never demanded those. Tolkien never demanded those in the earlier days. Um, but we'll, we notice that Huon is another example, as we will see others, and we've talked about this before, his desire to systematize, right? His desire to make everything fit and to make sense in a way that's going to hold together with the narrative of the Lord of the Rings. That does not always trump his mythic impulse, right? And he's not going to lose Huon. Huon is still going to stay Huon. Um, uh, so I, I, th th we don't see any evidence. Uh, I don't remember any evidence that he's planning to to, to nerf Huon uh, at any time uh, in the future because obviously <laughs> Huon is too, is too awesome for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Chris says, do all good dogs uh, go to Mandos? Well, see, there you go. Like, talk about your questions he wasn't asking, right, when he was writing the Book of Lost Tales, right? But I would not be surprised uh, for him to be asking a question almost exactly like that. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, exactly. So, Josiah, we will come later on to, again, he's going to get around to thinking about questions like this, right? So uh, we will see uh, we will see more of this uh, in the last two volumes uh, of the History of Middle-earth, absolutely. Um, yeah, and Mary, Mary and I agree. Uh, uh, it is, I also am really glad that uh, Tolkien did not, like, totally privilege his systematizing impulse over his mythic impulse. Um, uh, again, this is the, this this is sort of the process. This whole process has been the process of marrying those two, not of simply replacing the one with the other. Fortunately, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and Karita completely correct. Existential questions aside, uh, he was too good of a dog to edit out. That, that's it. I mean, there's no question. There's no question. Um, and Josiah, you're certainly correct that, uh, as we see, have seen so often in Tolkien's revision processes and things, his natural instinct, as Josiah says, was to retain and explain, not just to overwrite. Yeah, he's not... Um, it's not that he is refuses to overwrite. And there are certainly some times where we've seen there, you know, that there are some of these larger philosophical and theological issues that have arisen, which are leading him to be doing some systematic rethinking, which if born through, uh, would, um, uh, would amount to some rewriting and replacements, but you're certainly right. That's not his, uh, that's not his M.O., right, when he's when he's revising and he's reworking his stuff. Um, OK, let's keep going. Um, so here's um, Andreth trying to explain. Yet among my people, from wise unto wise, out of the darkness, comes the voice saying that men are not now as they were, nor as their true nature was in the beginning. And clearer still is this said by the wise people of Marach, who have preserved in memory a name for him that you call Eru, though in my folk he was almost forgotten. So I learn from from Adenel. They say plainly that men are not by nature short-lived, but have become so through the malice of the Lord of Darkness, whom they do not name. Okay, so the the people of Marach, right, uh, have retained the... Like, they have the best theology of any of the tribes of men, right? They have retained these stories. They know about God, right? They, 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 they have heard of Eru. They have a name for him. Um, so that is, notice how, I, I mean, to, it's, it's not really true to the tone of this paragraph. Um, but to some extent, it seems to me, uh, Andreth is kind of bringing that fact forward as a kind of, like, um, supporting evidence, right? Like, so you can see, you have reason to believe. Finrod could be completely dismissive, right? He could be like, look, you know, the legends passed down through generations and generations of men who are increasingly confused about what's going on. Um, Like, when I weigh in the balance, these, like, distant rumors and legends from you know not whom and how they've come and how they might have been changed and corrupted over time. When I weigh that in the balance against our elvish lore that we, like, learn personally from, you know, Manway and Varda, like, you know, uh, forgive me for saying that I can't give that the kind, the same level of credence that I give to elvish lore. I mean, he could just pull rank like that and be like, you know, Andreth, I think you need to face up to the fact that these legends that, you know, these kind of rumors, these stories that are being passed down among men are probably pretty unreliable, right? But no, he doesn't go there, right? He doesn't question that. He treats her throughout, her personally and men as a whole, as 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 peers, right? He is showing continually, showing respect to their traditions. And she, again, so she is kind of presenting um, some evidence here, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah, she's, um, that you know, that to basically show like, yeah, like we, we kind of, you know, 
we're not totally ignorant, right? We uh, we 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 still know some stuff, which is confirmed uh, by your elvish lore, right? So you can see that we we know some things. Um, the core of this doctrine, the this doctrine of the fall, because uh, a fall it sort of has to be called, I think, um, though that's not her vocabulary. So maybe. Um, uh, maybe I shouldn't use that. I should avoid using that because I should try to. I always one of my always rules is to try to use the vocabulary of the text rather than imposing another vocabulary upon it. So I'll try to resist that here. Um, but um, the effect of the malice of the Lord of Darkness, right, of Melkor. So she insists. Human tradition is firm on the fact that humans used to be immortal and have become short-lived. Death has been imposed upon them, and it came through the malice of Melkor. And this kind of... Uh, notice Finrod's first reaction to this doctrine. That I can well believe, said Finrod, trying to work with her here, right? That your body suffer in some measure the malice of Melkor, for you live in Ardamard, as do we. And all the matter of Arda was tainted by him, before ye or we came forth, and drew our Hroar and their sustenance therefrom, all save only Amon before he came there. For no, it is not otherwise with the Quendi themselves. Their health and stature are diminished. Already those of us who dwell in Middle-earth, and even we who have returned to it, find that the change of their bodies is swifter than in the beginning. And that, I judge, must forebode that they will prove less strong to last than they were designed to be, though this may not be clearly revealed for many long years. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, right. Uh, uh, the men have changed over time through the malice of Melkor. So he's like, great, yeah, all right, I know just what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, you are absolutely correct. Um, uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, Arda Mard and all that. Right. This must be so you guys didn't fully understand the doctrine of Arda Mard, of course, because you didn't know about Melkor and the discord of Melkor and, you know, the music of the Einar and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, we kind of got the backstory on that and you didn't. But still, you still figured it out. Right. You still had this perception uh, which is a true perception, right? You you ha you accurately had this perception that being part of Artemard, right, and drawing your bodies from Artemard and your sustenance of those bodies from Artemard, right, that you're marred and your bodies are marred and it's affecting you, uh, and so you're becoming more short-lived over time. And he's like. Us too. Not short-lived exactly, but it's totally affecting us, right? I mean, our Fae are, are, are still going to hang out, right, for the whole history of Arda, but, you know, um, I feel it. He's like, I, already I feel it. I've been in Middle-earth now for, you know, a while, a couple centuries, and um, it's, um, yeah, whew, yeah. I'm feeling it, and I'm sure apparently it affects you guys differently, a little bit more, kind of disquietingly more, but um, but yeah, so again, he's he's trying... Um, uh, yeah, exactly, uh, David. He's trying to uh, establish some kind of common ground between them, right, um, here. Um, now, 
Michael, uh, Dennis says, long-lived and immortal could be conflated in their stories. The term not short-lived seems shadily vague. Potentially, or at least uh, I would say, Michael, enough to excuse Finrod's misunderstanding here. Um, she's going to become much less vague about this, right? What she means is we were not intended ever to die. She'll say that much more explicitly. Um, but I agree, she's a little shy. Uh, I don't know, shy might, might not be the right word, but she's diffident in her expression here, um, uh, which does seem to permit, if not if not even invite, the kind of misunderstanding that he has, right? But the very natural impulse that Finrod has here, not only to establish common ground and show respect, like, yes, we, you've seen the same things that we do. Again, you can see him even kind of trying to build her up in this. But what he's seeing is assuming that she's describing the same thing that he knows, that he believes, right? But that's not what she's talking about. That is not the voice that the wise hear out of the darkness and from beyond it. Nay, Lord, the wise among men say, we were not made for death, nor born ever to die. Death was imposed upon us. And behold, the fear of it is with us always, and we flee from it forever as the heart from the hunter. But for myself I deem that we cannot escape within this world. Nay, not even if we could come to the light beyond the sea, or that Amon of which ye tell. In that hope we set out, and have journeyed through many lives of men, but the hope was vain. So said the wise. But that did not stay the march, for as I have said, they are little heeded. And lo, we have fled from the shadow to the last shores of Middle-earth, to find only that it is here before us. Um, so she begins by being very explicit. We were not made for death, nor born ever to die, Death was imposed upon us. So the belief of the wise among men is that death is, uh, well, Arthur exactly imposed by whom is going to be, of course, the question that Finrod is immediately going to leap to. They believe that it was imposed upon them by Melkor. Um, again, that to go back for a second. Uh, yeah, uh, but have become so through the malice of the Lord of Darkness, whom they do not name. That's already been made explicit, right? The malice of Melkor imposed death upon them. They have been victimized by Melkor, who has made them mortal when they were never intended to be mortal. That's their story, right? That's what they believe. Um, that's what she characterizes as the voice that the wise hear out of the darkness and from beyond it, from beyond the darkness, um, which I think um, is meant to be a little bit, what was the word that you used? Shady? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be an apt adjective here. Um, a little bit uncomfortable, right? Um a little bit uncomfortable. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, Josiah, I agree with you. Even with the uh, uh, the phrase that she used in the previous, uh, 
became so through the malice of the Lord of Darkness. Uh, Josiah is pointing out that there's still some wiggle room there, right? And that's that's correct. Um, through the malice of the Lord of Darkness, not necessarily by the malice of the Lord of Darkness. Yes, agreed. Uh, and that, of course, is going to turn out to be very important. Um, but uh, but anyway, Andreth, tell me about this voice that you guys hear out of the darkness, because that sounds uncomfortable, right? Um, certainly in the context of, I mean, even in the context of this very paragraph, she's talking about the shadow, capital S, right? Um, the darkness that they're fleeing from. Um, the darkness of their fear, the 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 malice that has pursued them, um, the the fear, the thing which they are running from, she characterizes that as shadow, and then she talks about a voice, the voice of the darkness, a voice out of the darkness, and from beyond it, right? Um, all I would say here is that. Andreth is very consistent about insisting there's a kind of parallel here, right? On the one hand, Finrod is sharing with her elvish lore, and on the one hand, the source of the elvish lore is the elves, right? He, They have been thinking about this stuff. They have pondered on these matters long, and they have theories uh, which make sense and which they believe um, on the one hand, right? That, that these are their ideas, right? But they do have some authority for some of their ideas, right? Um, their ideas have been formed by and informed by um, the authority of the Valar, right? Some of these things the Valar have explained to them, or at least some of the basic principles have been explained to them by the Valar, and the elves have then worked from those principles to draw specific conclusions about other things, right? Um, so that's the elvish situation. Notice that Andreth is essentially claiming a parallel situation for the teachings of the wise among men. Um, the teachings of the wise among men are not... It, it, this is not just theories by people by humans. These are not just human theories and human philosophies. Um, just as the, the lore and, and theories of the elves have been informed by basic premises that have been handed to them by authority, right, from the Valar, there is an authority that has informed the wisdom of men as well. She is claiming that the wisdom of the men has been informed by an outside source, that there is a voice out of the darkness and from beyond it that has whispered to the men, uh, to the wise among men. And that is the authority that she claims. Um, and... It can only seem a little discomforting. I, I don't think it can possibly not seem discomforting that she characterizes it as a voice out of the darkness. Um, whose authority are you basing this on, right? So that is to say, my point here is just that 
I'm trying to, I'm kind of putting myself into Finrod's point of view. Right. Um, and I think he has every reason to be like, okay. Um, can we, can we talk about the voice out of the darkness? You know, maybe we should question that. Uh, but notice that she's not dumb. He doesn't do that. Right. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say like, okay, hang on voice out of the dark. Are you serious right now? Right. You, you know about Morgoth and you're and you believe that he came to you and victimized you. And yet you're still listening to voices out of the darkness. Did you guys learn nothing? Right. I mean, he could he could totally say that. It, that would seem to me to be, you know, a little bit rude, but wholly justified on one level. Right. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. And one of the reasons I think that he doesn't do that is that again, notice again within this pair, she's well aware of the shadow and the significance of the shadow, right? It would be insulting to her to say, um, you know, Andrew, has it ever occurred to you that this voice out of the darkness might be Morgoth's voice? Of course it's occurred to them, right? It is clear that, because I mean, they know about the darkness. They know about the shadow. They know about Morgoth. That's what this whole stuff is built on, right? Um, but they also know about Eru. And uh, so if she is saying both of these things at once, if she's talking about fleeing from the shadow at the same time that she's talking about the voice out of the darkness, he's giving her the benefit of the doubt that she's kind of worked through that possibility uh, and believes that the authority that the men are claiming is not, in fact, just a lying voice of Melkor. I can't imagine that at this point in the conversation, Finrod is not still kind of harboring that possibility, right, uh, of an interpretation in his mind. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, it is possible, Josiah, that, uh, as Josiah says, she characterizes all of human history pre-Balerian as being under the shadow. Uh, So this could just mean it's a tradition from human prehistory. Yes, that she could mean from beyond it, not in some kind of uh, like metaphysical sense, but in a in a historical sense, right? This darkness has lain upon us uh, humans for some time, but there is a voice from beyond the darkness. Um, if the voice from beyond the darkness are the legends and tales which come down to them from before the darkness fell, um, it could mean that, but. I'm not—and and so, Josiah, I think it does, on one level, mean that. Definitely. But I think there's also more. Um, I think that she characterizes the voice as more than just um, tradition, basically. But I do think that that's part of it, too. Um, anyway, okay, so— notice how she says humans have been fleeing from death. They've been wanting to escape death. Um Notice that the desire to escape from death and the fear of death is literally the beginning of the story, right? The earliest story of humans in Middle-earth is their desire to escape from death. So, you know, Numenor, the Nazgul, right? You know, everything else that is going to come later on is just like even, you know, even Numenor, of course, is merely recapitulating what has been the story of humans um, for literally as long as they remember, right? For all of recorded human history. Um, notice, however, also 
the divide, the divide between the wise and the not wise among men, right? Um, the wise among men have been saying all along, guys, there's no escaping this. There's no, we can't get to a place where there isn't going to be any death, right? Um, journeying in order to, to find the land of eternal life, there's no point. It's not going to happen. Um, she's like, this didn't stop them from journeying because nobody listens to the wise, uh, but, um, but they already knew this, right? They already knew that that was not going to work. Um, and, uh, and she believes even if they get to Amun, it's not going to change anything. And I agree with her there. All right, let's keep going. But who did you this hurt? Right. So again, uh, uh, Arthur, we get, you know, Finrod coming straight to the point. Who imposed death upon you? But who did you this hurt? Who imposed death upon you? Melkor, it is plain that you would say, or whatever name you have for him in secret. For you speak of death and his shadow, as if these were one and the same. That is, death and Melkor's shadow, as if these were one and the same. And as if to escape from the shadow was to escape also from death. But these two are not the same, Andreth. So I deem, or death would not be found at all in this world which he did not which he did not design, but another. Nay, death is but the name that we give to something that he has tainted, and it sounds therefore evil, but untainted, its name would be good. Okay, so one paragraph at a time here. It is true, he is right to say that she was just characterizing the flight of humans from death, right? They're fleeing from death and the fear of death, and they were also fleeing from the shadow, right? The shadow of Melkor, um, capital S, shadow, right? Um, and he says, like, so it sounds like you identify these things, right? As if to flee from death and to flee from Melkor were one and the same, and to escape from the shadow was to escape also from death, Um and he says, that's, um, uh, yeah, exactly. As Josiah says, so even if, say, you were to take a fleet and force your way to Valinor, that probably wouldn't help, hypothetically speaking. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, so now he's going to lay on her some more elvish lore, right? Let's think about death in the abstract, right? Given that you guys clearly believe that Melkor imposed death upon you and that you are identifying, in a way, the power of Melkor with death. Um, he's like, that's not possible. right? He's trying to explain to her that that is impossible, that that could not have happened. right? Um, if death were the effect, an effect that Melkor had upon the world, um, there wouldn't be any death in the world, he says, because this world wasn't, wasn't designed by Melkor, but by another capital A, right? Eru designed the world, not Melkor. Um, Melkor affected it. Melkor marred it, right? And thus, he tainted death um, and made it seem evil and tainted it with fear, Right? But so like your fear of death, maybe that comes from the shadow, right? But death itself can't come from the shadow. Um, 
death is just the name that we give to something um, that he is tainted, but untainted, its name would be good. There's nothing wrong with death, necessarily. And again, here I think that Finrod is thinking back to uh, the nature of other living things, right? Like the plants and the animals and things like that, right? That the idea that, you know, living creatures die and decompose and other living creatures rise again. He's like, that seems to be how things work here, right? The elves are an odd exception to this rule, right? But it seems to be part of the plan. This seems to be part of the world as Iluvatar designed it. Um, I had heard, said Andreth. That it, oh, sorry, I skipped a bit here. Um, he says, like, so, you know, we, the Eldar, returned to Middle-earth in order to fight the shadow, right? So he's like, we, you know, like, you're totally right about resisting, you know, escaping the shadow. And obviously, like, Melkor's influence is really bad. And we came here in order to fight him and to, to try to help others to escape from the shadow, right? And uh, to which she responds with one of her rudest comments. I had heard, said Andreth, that it was to regain your treasure that your enemy had stolen. But maybe the House of Fenarfin is not at one with the sons of Feanor, she says generously. <laughs> Nonetheless, for all your valor, I say again. Um, remember, because he's just been saying, like, death, we, pff, we know all about death. He's like, my, you know, my grandpa died, right? Grandpa got murdered by Morgoth, and it was terrible. There was like, boy, it was like, boom, and his sword was like, blah. And he was like, whoa. And, you know, he just, you know, was just been talking about how elves are, you know, we know all about death, Andrath. Like, we suffer this, too. Um, to which he is responding, nonetheless, for all your valor, I say again, what know ye of death? To you it may be in pain, it may be bitter and a loss, but only for a time, a little taken from abundance, unless I've been told untruth. For ye know that in dying you do not leave the world, and that you may return to life. Otherwise it is with us. Dying, we die, and we go out to no return. Death is an uttermost end, a loss irremediable. It is abominable, for it is also a wrong that is done to us. Notice two things there, right? First, death for humans means something. You can't go on and be like, oh, we know all about death. We get killed all the time. Whatever, right? Okay, so you die and then you spend a little time in Mandos, whatever, and then you come back. So what? What do you spend? Maybe a millennium, right? Out of what? You know, 150,000 years or a million years or something? Oh, who cares, right? That's not death. You don't know death, right? Don't you tell me about death, that you're familiar with death, right? Um, that thing that you call death, sure, yeah, maybe that's fine and good, right? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but you don't, you don't understand. So, but that's the one thing, right? Death means something different for us. Um, death is an uttermost end, a loss irremediable. We, I mean, this is, it's a permanent loss and it is abominable. This is the second point, for it is also a wrong that is done to us. We, d d 
it is an injustice in addition to being uh, an evil, you know, a, a bad thing far worse for us than it is for you. Right. A permanent loss. Um, it's also, we are also the victims here. It is a wrong that has been done. To, we have been deprived. We should have had, we were meant to have lives like you. We also were meant to be exceptions to the rule, right? If the like living and dying cycle is in fact the way that Iluvatar designed the world, as we can see with the plants and animals, um, the elves are exceptions to that. Well, so were we. We were exceptions to that too. And that was taken from us. We were robbed of our birthright by Melkor, by the malice of the shadow. It is abominable that that should happen. Big, big claim here. Um, That difference I perceive, said Finrod. You would say there are two deaths. The one is a harm and a loss, but not an end. The other is an end without redress, and the Quendi suffer only the first. So here's Finrod finally, like, again, notice how he doesn't get offended by the very rude thing that she said uh, to him about uh, sort of questioning the valor and the, 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 valor and the motives uh, of the elves. Um uh, but anyway, uh, you know, it, that's that's, you know, he 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 lets all that slide. Right. Um, he says, OK, so am I understanding you properly? Right. You think that when we talk about we don't we don't understand death at all. Right. Like that. D- there's there's like the elvish little D death. Right. And there's the human capital D death. Uh, and so the one is a small deal. The other is a big deal. We suffer the small deal and you suffer the big deal. Am I understanding you properly? Yes, but there is another difference also, said Andreth. One is but a wound in the chances of the world, which the brave or the strong or the fortunate may hope to avoid. The other is death ineluctable, death the hunter who cannot in the end be escaped. Be a man strong or swift or bold, be he wise or a fool, be he evil, or be he in all the deeds of his days just and merciful, let him love the world or loathe it, he must die and leave it, and become carrion that men are fain to hide or to burn. So yes, on the one hand, every death suffered by men is the big death, and you guys only suffer the tiny, you know, this shadow of death. Right. This you only get mostly dead. Right. Not even mostly dead. You're only partly dead. Right. Uh, And we go all the way dead. Right. But it's not only that. It's that we can't even escape it. Yes, you can die. You can get killed in battle. But you know what? Like, you know, if um, if you're lucky and uh, and uh, uh you know, if you're skilled and lucky, uh, you can, if you're both lucky and good, uh, you can you can escape it. You don't have to experience death. It could happen, but it needn't happen. Um, for us, it happens. So not only is death worse for us than it is for you, it is universal. It happens to all of us, and it doesn't matter. It's unjust, again. Notice her emphasis on injustice. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do. Um, it comes to the strong as well as the weak. It comes to the good as well as the evil. Like it, it literally doesn't matter. No matter how good you try to live, or what, or how wise you are, or how strong you are, you're still going to die, just like everybody else. Um, 
Okay. Um, notice Finrod throws in an interesting question here. And being thus pursued, have men no hope? Said Finrod. Now, remember the importance of hope. Um, here we go back to the Finway and Muriel stuff and the debate of the Valar. Remember the importance of hope. Manway talking about hope, uh, hope and justice. Remember all that. Remember how she's, this is, I think, relevant here because she's focused on justice, right? She's talking about how they're, they're being done wrong, right? They are being done wrong. There is no justice in the, like, death is like a punishment being inflicted on everybody, whether they deserve it or not, right? And... Uh, and also, like, again, they've been robbed, right? Their birthright has been stripped from them, and, you know, there's nothing they can do about it, right? Um, so I think it's not coincidental, uh, in the light of all of her emphasis on the injustice of the situation of men, uh, the circumstances of men, that he throws in this question about hope. Being thus pursued, have men no hope, said Finrod. Um... This seems to me, in part, a gentle way of him getting around to saying, so, Andreth, what do you think happens to men after they die? Um, do you believe that they just are annihilated? That the fear of men are annihilated when they die? Is that, is that the point? Is that what you think? Or is there, is there something else? What do, you, what do you think? What hope have meant being thus pursued. So he's not questioning, right? He's like, I get it, right? Uh, death is the hunter that pursues you and catches everybody sooner, some sooner and some later, right? But he catches all of you. Being thus pursued, have men no hope. There's also potentially, I think, uh, the idea that he is um, asking, do you have any hope that this might change? That you could be delivered from this hunter, Right? If, if you used to be immortal and you changed to become mortal, could you change back? Right? Do you have some hope or idea that your state could change again since it already changed once? I think that's also maybe implied in his question here. They have no certainty and no knowledge, only fears or dreams in the dark, answered Andreth. That's her response to the question. So I think she is clearly taking the question to mean, do you know what happens after you die? Right. And her answer is no certainty and no knowledge, only fears or dreams in the dark. But hope, hope, that is another matter of which even the wise seldom speak. Is there hope? Seem she seems to imply, yes, there is some hope. Uh, there is a hope of which the wise know. But they don't talk about it much. Then her voice grew more gentle. Yet, Lord Finrod of the house of Finarfin, of the high and puissant elves, perhaps we may speak of it anon, you and I. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't seem to trust him enough to tell him this. This seems to be a deep secret which the, of which the wise seldom speak. Um, we have come to the point, the limitations of what she's willing to share with Finrod, with the elves, right? Um, though, as a compliment to him, this is the, the kindest thing that she's, after being rude many times, this is the kindest thing that she has said to him. Perhaps we may speak of it anon, you and I, 
right? Uh, so I think maybe I could trust you enough to talk about this with you. But not yet, right? We're almost there, but not quite there. Um, Anon we may, said, said Finrod, not pushing her. Again, really diplomatic, really kind, really thoughtful, um, really gentle. Anon we may, but as yet we walk in the shadows of fear. Thus far, then, I perceive that the great difference between elves and men is in the speed of the end, in this only. For if you deem that for the Quendi there is no death ineluctable, you err. You're wrong, Andreth, to think that elves can avoid death. That we just all go on living unless misfortune happens to us, and when it does, it's not that big a deal. Right. It's only the lowercase d death anyway. Um, but in any case, we might escape it altogether, whereas no man can escape from death. And he says, that's not true. That's not true. Um, Cecilia, when she says they have no certainty and no knowledge, um, she means she's speaking of men as a whole. Um, and I think that the distinction between um, the they here, like why she's saying they instead of I or we. Um, when she says they here, she's speaking of mankind as a whole, like the human race as a whole. Um, you go to the average, you know, human on the street and say, uh, do you know what happens to humans after they die? And they'll be like, I have no certainty or knowledge, only fears or dreams in the dark, right? That's what the average person on the street more or less would say, and perhaps not in those exact words. Um, so, Cecilia, I do think, though, that there's a distinction. Now, she's not saying that she or the otherwise have certainty and knowledge, right? They don't have certainty and knowledge, but that doesn't mean they have no hope, right? Um they, mankind, men as a whole, have no certainty or no knowledge. But the wise, hope, mm, hope is another matter of which even the wise seldom speak. So the wise do have some hope, though that hope is not generally shared. It's not even generally discussed with most of the rest of humanity. Um, okay, but let's... Um, Let's go back to Finrod. So, so wait, what do you mean all elves die? Hang on, Finrod. Now, none of us know. This is Finrod still. Now, none of us know, though the Valar may know, the future of Arda, or how long it is ordained to endure. But it will not endure forever. It was made by Eru, but he is not in it. The one only has no limits. The only one thing which is eternal is Eru. Eru alone is eternal. And since Eru is not in Arda, he made it, but it is not him. It is not part of him, and he alone is eternal. Arda cannot be eternal. It has limits. Arda and Ea itself must therefore be bounded. You see us, the Quendi, still in the first ages of our being, and the end is far off. As may be among you, death may seem to a young man in his strength, save that we have long years of life and thought already behind us. But the end will come. This is, that is all we know. And then we must die. 
We must perish utterly, it seems, for we belong to Arda, in Hroa and Fea. And beyond that, what? The going out to no return, as you say, the uttermost end, the irremediable loss? Our hunter is slow-footed, but he never loses the trail. Beyond the day when he shall blow the mort, we have no certainty, no knowledge, and no one speaks to us of hope. This is an amazing and powerful speech by Finrod. Um, notice that this was never a question that was asked earlier on, right? For all the metaphysical speculations that were going on both in the, uh, you know, the laws and customs among the Eldar discussions and the Finway and Muriel stuff where it really all began to come out, um, and the contemplations of the, you know, the debates among the Valar and everything else. I don't remember anybody asking this question. So, like, we, he said over and over again that elves endure for as long as Arda endures. But what then? What then? When Arda ceases, do the elves cease? Because Arda will cease. Arda will have an end. That's implied all the way through. Um, and he explains the theology behind that, right? Um, the one only has no limits. Arda and Ea itself must therefore be bounded. He says, we're in the same position. Yes, our lives are longer, much longer, admittedly. But at the end of the day, we're in the same position. The going out to no return, the uttermost end, the irremediable loss, no certainty, no knowledge. That is, that describes the elves as well. Um, we don't know what's going to happen to us. Yes, we'll be around longer, but we face the same ultimate question. Um, yeah, Josiah, I agree. Josiah says, this. Uh, if this is really 100% new, it's amazing how it dovetails with and adds so much depth to the release from bondage. Oh, absolutely, Josiah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, when I think back to the Baron and Luthien story, as it's been to this point... Uh, in the mythology. Um, I mean, the theology of this was really uncertain. Um, but anyway, yeah, so so Finrod drops this bombshell. Yeah, elves live a really long time, but we're not immortal. Don't think of us as immortal, right? Um, notice the other implication of this for her, right? What he's seems to be implying, but has not yet said. Andreth, if it's true that humans were originally like elves in some way, right, it, but, you know, undying like elves, if death was imposed upon humans um, and they weren't meant to suffer it, then you probably were in the same position that we are. In other words, this no certainty, no knowledge, this going out to no return, the uttermost end, the irremediable loss that you're complaining of, that would have been your fate anyway, as it's our fate, right? 
you don't you don't see us whinging about this, right? Like we face the same thing. Everybody is in the same position. Everyone within Arda, all of the children of Iluvatar, like at the end, at the end of the day, just like the beasts and the plants, right? We're all in the same position. It's different. Yes, it's different with us. Um, it's not exactly the same, but it's um, not entirely different either. It's not completely separate. Um, the death thing is still part, and has, and this is where where he began, right? Death. It's not like new. It's not a Melkorian. It's it's not a what would it be Melkorian uh, uh, invention. Um, it's just it's just not um, uh, more gothic. I think the adjectival form would be more gothic. It would have to be, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think so. It's not a more gothic invention. Um, but, um, okay, I kind of am in love with that word now. More gothic. Yeah, it's my word of the day. Anyway, um, in response to this, she's stunned, right? She's stunned. She's never heard or thought of this before, right? Um, but she comes back around to insisting um, that Morgoth did this to them, instituted this change to them. And he responds by saying, look, if that's true, if it is true that Morgoth, by his own will and power, changed the very nature, the very sort of created nature of the children of Iluvatar, then Morgoth is so powerful that there can no, be no possible resistance to him by anybody. Us, the Valar, anybody. Right? Everything in the world is hopeless and useless if Morgoth has that much power. If he had the power to change the nature of the children of Iluvatar, then he is practically a peer of Iluvatar himself. Right? And everything is useless. And she's like, whoa, Tiger! Right? Like, uh, you know... Uh, she's like, you you can't handle that, you know, like, so like the, the first glimpse of this and you like you elves leap to despair. Like, come on, like we've been dealing with this for a long time. And this is where she comes back around to calling him. She names Morgoth the Lord of the World. She's like, if you if if it's a new idea to you guys that, you know, Morgoth is the Lord of the World, it's not new to us. Right. We've been uh We've uh, we've been familiar with that idea for a long time, and this is his response to that. Beware, said Finrod. Beware, lest you speak the unspeakable, wittingly or in ignorance, confounding Eru with the enemy who would fain have you do so. The Lord of this world is not he, but the one who made him, and his vicegerent is Manwe, the elder king of Arda, who is blessed. Nay, Andreth, the mind darkened and distraught, to bow and yet to loathe, to flee and yet not to reject, to love the body and yet to scorn it, the carrion disgust. These things may come from Morgoth indeed. But to doom the deathless to death, from father unto son, and yet to leave to them the memory of an inheritance taken away, and the desire for what is lost, could Morgoth do this? No, I say. And for that reason I said that if your tale is true, then all in Arda is vain. 
from the pinnacle of Oyolase to the uttermost abyss, for I do not believe your tale. None could have done this save the one. Therefore I say to you, Andrath, what did ye do, ye men, long ago in the dark? How did ye anger Eru? For otherwise all your tales are but dark dreams devised in a dark mind. Will you say what you know or have heard? Oh, what did ye do, ye men, long ago in the dark? How did ye anger Eru? Whew. This um, uh, this passage um, gives me chills. Yeah, Michael, I love that expression. How could the Morgoth do this? Um, I don't remember. Does anybody else remember him using a definite article with Morgoth? Before? I know that Morgoth means, you know, the black enemy, uh, but, um, uh, you know, the, the black foe of the world. Um, so, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Black foe, you know, the black foe. Um, but uh, I, I can't remember another another time. Um, uh, it's kind of cool. I kind of like it. Um, the Morgoth. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, no, I was really struck by that too, Michael. I don't have any explanation for it. Um, yeah, Josiah says uh, he uses it in personal essays, but I don't know another place in story. Yeah, I, I couldn't think of another one either, uh, like in, in dialogue like this. Anyway, okay. Um, he begins with a theological assertion, right? Do not make a mistake. Melkor is not the boss. El Melkor is not the lord of this world. He's not even the one in charge of the world, right? The elder king of Arda is Manwe. Um, the lord of the world is the one who made Melkor. Melkor is himself a creature, um, just like the rest of us, right? Um, the difference is only in scale, not in being. Um, he might be greater than we but he's not other than we. He is a creature like we, and therefore related to the rest of creation like we are. Um, he is part of creation, not the act, not the agent of creation. Um, so that's the first theological assertion. It's like, did you, beware, lest you speak the unspeakable wittingly or in ignorance. Do not confound Eru with the enemy who would fain have you do so. Because should the day come when humans do that, right? If humans ever get to the point where they begin worshiping the enemy in place of Eru, when they begin confounding, um, you know, Melkor with Iluvatar himself, you know, in that day, there are going to be some islands sinking down beneath the sea, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Carrie, you're right that the Valar and the Eldar did underestimate the power given to Melkor, and we remember them talking about that, right? Um, but see, but Carrie, that not in the sense that Finrod is talking about, right? That is to say, they underestimated the extent of the taint, the extent of the marring. Um, and the primary thing, of course, that the Valar underestimated, they thought that Amon was exempt 
right? That they had protected Amon from any taint, um, from any of the marring, that they had a little Arda, a little subset of Arda unmarred over there. And of course, that turned out to be not true, as of course the death of Muriel suggested in the first place, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so, uh, but, but, they didn't underestimate, but but not like this, right? Um, it's not like they they weren't wrong about this. This they knew, uh, and this uh, this is one of the bedrock pieces of theology that Finrod is not going to bend from, which he is willing to just say to her, "Beware!" Right? Like, don't don't even don't even go there. Absolutely, don't go there. Um, and now he is. Um, Cecilia, exactly as you say, we see him now. He's been very patient and trying to understand her. And it took him a while to really grasp because what she's saying seems so strange. Um, and he's tr still trying. He still doesn't understand it, but he was trying to understand what she was saying. Just even like the basic fact that she was saying. Um, now he is pushing back some, right? He's, he's, so he says here basically like... I. I I hear you, right? I hear what you're saying, but that it's not possible. It cannot be. It is theologically impossible for that thing to happen. Could the Morgoth do this? Could he change the nature? Could he doom the deathless to death from father unto son? Could he change the nature of humans permanently? No way. There is no way Morgoth could possibly do that. Notice, though, even there, even when he's resisting her, even when he's saying, I hear you, but you must be wrong to think that death was imposed upon you by Morgoth. He's saying that, and he's saying that unwaveringly, but even here he's being gentle, you'll notice, right? Um, he says, look, there are many things about this that could come from Morgoth, right? The mind darkened and distraught, to bow and yet to loathe, to flee and yet not to reject, to love the body and yet to scorn it, the carry and disgust, these things may come from Morgoth indeed. The tone of things, right? Your attitudes, the mindset of humans, yes, these things are within the power of Morgoth to effect. Um... To bow to something that you hate. That's a situation that Morgoth can help to bring about. Uh, to flee from something that you don't totally... like This division of heart and mind. Um, yes, Morgoth can bring that about. To love the body and yet to scorn it. Yeah, yeah. All of these kind of imbalances. The carrion disgust. Remember when she was referring to the like treatment of dead bodies? Um the most noble and good person in the world will still eventually become a corpse that people want to either hide or burn, right? The disgust of carrion, the disgust of dead bodies. That is not natural, according to Finrod, right? That's a corruption. That's a perversion. And the kind of corruption um, that, the kind of darkening of the mind that can come from Morgoth. So he says... I'm not saying that you weren't victimized by Morgoth in some way. He's even saying, I think you're right. You're 
mindset, the human mindset, right? The kind of troubles that you guys are describing having. These are things that totally have Morgoth's fingerprints all over them, right? I absolutely think that you're right to believe that Morgoth did something to you guys, um, had some impact on you. But don't confuse it. That does not mean he invented death and imposed death upon you. That is impossible. Therefore, and I've, I, I, my subtitle for this slide is one of my favorite subtitles in a long time, uh, Forensic Theology. Um, he, through the application of these theological principles, comes down to the root of the problem, right? It can only be Eru who took, if you're right, if you are correct that humans were designed not to be de designed to be deathless, if death was imposed upon them, it has to have been imposed by Eru. He is the only one who could impose death. And therefore, if death was imposed upon you by a Luvatar, if he changed your nature, why? What could make him do that? What did ye do, ye men, long ago in the dark? How did ye anger Eru? Um, again, notice he points out that um, otherwise all your tales are but dark dreams devised in a dark mind. Capital D, capital M at the end. Dark dreams, lowercase letters, devised in a dark mind, capital D, capital M, right? All your tales, all this idea about, like, Morgoth could not possibly have imposed death upon you, but he could have implanted the idea, right? This whole idea that you have and that you're clinging to, that humans used to be immortal, but immortality was taken from you. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like malicious lies spread by Melkor, right? I can tell you about malicious lies spread by Melkor, Right. Uh, and indeed, if we think about it, it's not so far away from some of the malicious lies spread among the Noldor in Valinor. Right. Um, oh, the Valar are just holding you in bondage. Right. You are being caged in a narrow place. Right. They're trying to uh, to to keep you here so that you're uh, you know, that you're you you can be supplanted by the men who are coming afterwards. Right. That those are similar kinds of lies. Right. To sow discontent. Uh, to make the humans, so this lie, right, the dark dreams devised by the dark mind, um, to make them feel envious of the elves, right? Uh, to, to Just as he was trying to foment dissatisfaction uh, and distrust uh, towards the Valar by the Noldor, so here now he's trying to sow discord between the elves and the men, right? What is the result? Well, look at uh, Andreth's bitterness, Right. Look at how how she has been talking to an elf about elves. Yeah, uh, Finrod's theory here is highly plausible. Right, highly plausible. Um, uh, yeah, Arthur, that's a really good point. Arthur says uh, it has occurred to me that this discussion is interesting in the context of do you not know death when you see it? Um, 
Wow, Arthur, I did not think of that connection. But yeah, boy, the Witch King's words, um, the Witch King's words gain a huge layer of theological resonance and even irony, right? Like there's a whole new level of dramatic irony uh, to the Witch King's statement there. Um, Do you not know death when you see it, he says. Yeah, well, you could respond to that and be like, well, now that's an interesting question, Mr. Witch King. Uh, can I call you a witch? Um, uh, but anyway, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, a fascinating question. And uh, uh, yeah, do you, do you, let me ask you, let me throw this back at you, Mr. The Witch King. Do you, do you know death when you see it? Right. Uh, what, what, what do you think death is? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Nancy, I agree with you. There are two elements to Finrod's conclusion here, right? Um, the one that he states openly and the one that he does not state. Um, uh, Nancy was saying it's interesting that he assumes that if death was imposed by a Luvatar, it must have been in, uh, it must have been inflicted as a punishment. Um, uh, it doesn't seem that that was necessarily his stance in the beginning. I agree, Nancy. And we'll come back around to his explaining. He's going to explain more fully the Elvish theory about um, about uh, the the gift of Iluvatar, right? Death as the gift of Iluvatar. So he's going to he's going to come back around to that. But. Um, I think that the reason he is taking that leap here to say that death is a punishment is not because he's just kind of making that assumption blindly. He's trusting her again. He's 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 giving her the benefit of the doubt um, for him to turn around at this point and say, OK, Andreth, I've been I'm, I'm hearing you, but let's just face it. You are totally barking up the wrong tree here. Right. You have been deceived utterly from the beginning. Not only is it not possible for Morgoth to impose death upon you, Eru must have Eru obviously had to impose death upon you. And so therefore, death, you've been saying death is a horrible thing and an abomination. Actually, it's great. Right. You've been wrong about this. So, like, congratulations on the death thing. And like that would be kind of insensitive for him to say. Like, he's saying, like, your own words, Andreth. Right. You believe firm like you say and who am i to the elf to judge right if you tell me that men know and feel and they 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 know from experience that death as they experience it is a is a wrong is an abomination is he's like i i hear you and if that's true if it's true that death is a a bad thing that has happened to you it can only have been done to you by Eru. And if Eru has inflicted this bad thing upon you, you have to have deserved it, right? It has to be a punishment for something. So how did you anger Eru? Um, there is, of course, still the other option, right? The other option that it wasn't a punishment, that it was a gift. Um, and that, I think, is what he really believes. But he is pointing out to her here, I think, that... The logic of your own statements. When you take your own convictions, Andreth, 
convictions about how abominable death is and how humans have been done bad, you know, by this. Um, you combine that with the th- unquestionable theological truth that only Eru has the power to do this. Combine those two things and what do you get? How did ye anger Eru? That's the result. If you want to question the one, if you want, if you want to open your mind, perhaps to the idea that this death thing isn't so bad, right? That maybe this was Eru's design all along. And if this was something that Eru did impose, if he did impose death, maybe he did that from the beginning, actually. And maybe, uh, your tales are in fact dark dreams devised by a dark mind. Maybe you people have been um, deceived. And again, Finrod could be like, dude, I feel you. Like, happened to us, right? Been there, right? Noldor got totally bamboozled by Morgoth in exactly this way. So, and I would not be surprised, by the way, if that is the way that the rest of this conversation went, if Andreth's response to this had been huh, yeah, actually, uh, maybe, okay, maybe we've been wrong. Yeah, maybe Morgoth, maybe this whole thing, this bad feeling that we have about death, and, um, you know, maybe this is all just, um, maybe we've been bamboozled by Melkor into thinking and feeling this way. Maybe death is okay. My suspicion is that he would have actually said that, that he would have actually gone on to be like, yeah, man, like, you know, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad about being totally wrong about everything you believed because been there, man. I totally can understand how that could happen. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but Brian, exactly. Brian says that if death for humans were the original will of Eru, Finrod would expect men to understand that it was natural and proper in some sense, even if that knowledge is buried under lies of Morgoth. Yes, Brian, and that's exactly what he's emphasizing when he says, um, but to doom the deathless to death from father unto son, and yet to leave to them the memory of an inheritance taken away and the desire for what is lost, could Morgoth do this? That's exactly it, Brian. Right. Um, Morgoth couldn't do that. Right. Yes, he can deceive, but he can't if if and and again, this is Finrod giving Andreth the benefit of the doubt, assuming that Andreth is correct, that humans all have had like throughout their remembered history have all had this conviction that death is not just, you know, not very nice or suboptimal, right? But an abomination imposed upon them. That if it were Eru's original plan, so I mean, he came into this believing. He came into this discussion believing that death was Eru's original plan for them, and so that's why he's having a really, you know, he's that's why he's taking this so seriously, Brian, because he's like, yeah, that if if that was the plan, yes, Morgoth could have corrupted their ideas. But would it have this effect? Could he do it to this extent? No. He doesn't think that Morgoth is capable of that. He's not capable of dooming the deathless to death, nor does he think he's capable of leaving to them the memory of an inheritance taken away and the desire for what is lost. He couldn't, he couldn't do it, and he couldn't orchestrate that situation either. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is why this again, I think is, is why he's, I think he is not only saying a hypothetical when he says, how did you anger Eru? Um, this now seems to him he's he's entertaining this idea, right? This is Finrod legitimately saying, whoa, maybe all Elvish lore about human death has been wrong all along, right? We've always believed that it was. And he's going to explain that rationale um, uh, soon. But he does seem to be, when he says, how did you anger Eru, that this seems to be the conclusion that he himself is coming to as well. This is the most likely explanation, um, it's the only possible explanation of what appear to be the facts. Um, and uh, she um, she kind of dodges this. She doesn't want to talk about this. Um, he says, uh, her immediate response is, well, like, it's not very, we don't know that much about this. And we, you know, we don't... Um, and then he says, do you think that none know save yourselves? You know, when he asks, what are the facts about this? She's like, well, there's the people of Marak know more than we do, but they don't know that all that much. And there is a story that Adonel tells, but, uh, you know, uh, that's all. And then he's like, well, hang on. I wasn't just like, there are other sources of information, you know. Um, do not the Valar know? Andreth looked up and her eyes darkened. The Valar, she said. How should I know? Or any man, your valor do not trouble us either with care or instruction. Oh, ouch! Do not trouble us with care or instruction. Yeah, we've not been afflicted with you know the the the, the tender care and thoughtful instruction of the valor. Ouch! They sent no summons to us. She says. What do you know of them? Said Finrod. I have seen them and dwelt among them, and in the presence of Manwe and Varda I have stood in the light. Speak not of them so, nor of anything that is high above you. Such words came first out of the lying mouth. Don't talk about the Valar that way. You're bitter that the Valar didn't summon you. You feel like we elves have received preferential treatment that was not given to you, that you've been deprived, that you've been neglected by the Valar. Think about the assumptions that you're making there, Andreth. You are ascribing to the Valar motivations. You are accusing them with no evidence, no evidence, that they have neglected you, that they should have given you equal treatment and didn't, right? What do you know of them, he says? Why do you assume that they didn't summon you out of neglect, out of favoritism, right? That they just couldn't be bothered to care for you or give you instruction. No, they haven't come and brought you to Valinor. No, they haven't come to live among you and instruct you. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe it's not just that they couldn't be bothered. Don't make assumptions about people that you don't know. I do know Manway and Varda. Don't speak of them. Don't pretend like you know what they were thinking and accuse them like this. This is how Morgoth talks. Such words came first out of the lying mouth. Has it never entered into your thought, Andreth, 
that out there in ages long past ye may have put yourselves out of their care and beyond the reach of their help? Or even that ye, the children of men, were not a matter that they could govern? For ye were too great. Yea, I mean this, and do not only flatter your pride, too great, sole masters of yourselves within Arda, under the hand of the one. Beware, then, how you speak. If ye will not speak to others of your wound or how ye came by it, take heed lest, as unskilled leeches, ye misjudge the hurt, or in pride misplace the blame. Two huge things, he says. He gives two theories here, right? Two theories as to why the Valar did not reach out to men. Why Orome did not make his way to Hildorian, right? Reason number one. Is it possible that you, in ages long past, you humans, put yourself out of the care and beyond the reach of the help of the Valar? Is there something that you did that you chose that led to this? He's like, I don't know, right? Maybe, maybe you did. I don't know, but it's possible, right? So again, before you just assume that the Valar have done you wrong, right? Consider the possibility. It's possible that this was your choice, right? That this was something that you did, right? That you put yourself beyond the reach of their help. But there's another theory, and this other theory is very remarkable. Is it possible that they were not invited to Valinor, that the Valar did not come and teach them and care for them like they did for the Eldar? Because the men were already under Iluvatar's direct care. The Valar didn't need to because Iluvatar was already there. Ye were too great, sole masters of yourselves within Arda under the hand of the One. What if the reason for this is not because of neglect, but because of respect? Iluvatar was taking a hand directly with you, and I can't help but remember that voice from beyond the darkness that they talked that she talked about before. Um, ye are too great. I mean it. I'm not just flattering you, he says, right? I'm not just, I'm not just, you know, this is not just, uh, I'm just making stuff up here. You are sole masters of yourselves within Arda under the hand of the one. He is pointing, and now remember in the published Silmarillion, we get some things that point to this about the will of men and the freedom of the will of men. The idea that he seems to be pointing to, and he's pointing fairly vaguely at it right now, but the idea that he seems to be pointing to is we, the firstborn, are like children, right? We were given into the care of the Valar because that was sort of our level. You're a, What if you're above that? What if you are different, even from the Valar themselves? What if Iluvatar's own relationship with humanity is different from his relationship with the elves? Um, that is 
amazing. Now, Hold Off, I've alluded to it because it's clear that I wanted to just kind of touch base with that those that paragraph in the published Silmarillion that talks about the wills of men being differently um, uh, connected to the music. But I don't want to go too deeply into that. And the reason I don't want to go too deeply into that is that I don't want to make assumptions about the cause and effect that is about the relationship between this passage and that passage. All I want to do is remember the general concept, right? That when Finrod is, what Finrod is saying here is out there, right? The idea that humans are just different and different, not in a lesser way, but in some ways that they have a greater power, a different kind of role, that they are less constrained, um, that there is a likeness between the way in which the Eldar operate within Arda and the way that the Valar have constrained themselves to operate within Arda. There is a way in which the Valar and the Eldar are kind of like older siblings and younger siblings in the same family, right? Um, the men are not like that. Or at least, again, there's this idea that the humans could not just be the still younger sibling, right? The baby of the family, and now the elves are the middle child. No. Finrod says it's quite... Because po- if that were the case, then yes, she would be right to be bitter about this. Then yes, the Valar uh, did a crappy job of helping to raise the baby of the family. They neglected the baby, right? And just let them wander off and do their own thing. Um, uh yeah. Um, yeah. That is, uh, he's, so he, that, that, that's what he's resisting. That they're just different. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, Chris, I, I do agree with you. I'm not saying that uh, the uh, so soul masters of yourselves within Arda under the hand of the one. Um, I, 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 I'm not saying that that the things that I was drawing on that I'm trying to make explicit there. I'm way overstating Finrod's case. He's not gone anywhere near as explicitly as far as I have, but I think it's the direction that he's pointing. Um, when, and that's why he, because you could say soul masters of yourselves within Arda. Which Arda is under the hand of the one? Well, of course it is. He's already said that Arda is under the hand of the one, so everybody is equally under the hand of the one. Why does he even have to point that out, right? I think, again, what he's saying, soul masters of yourselves within Arda, that is, the elves answer to the Valar, right? Again, that's like the the older sibling, younger sibling kind of thing there, right? They, again, the humans are different. They don't answer to the Valar in the same way. But they do still answer to Iluvatar, right? So that's that's where it's so Chris, it is from that phrase that I'm getting this. Again, I'm not saying that he's uh stating explicitly Iluvatar took a much more direct hand in instructing you. I, I think that's possible, especially given what she's already said. But uh, but I don't think that he's being explicit about that here. But he is sort of saying there's kind of a different you, it is possible that you're just under a different hierarchy. 
that humans answer directly to Iluvatar, not to the Valar, in the same way. Yes, Manwe is the king of Arda, as he just said, you know, a couple paragraphs ago, stating the theological realities of the things, right? But that doesn't mean that, I mean, humans, in them he has done, uh, uh, in them he has done a new thing, it seems. And that uh, soul masters of yourselves within Arda, that's a really important statement. And that's what makes them different from elves. So why did the Valar not come and take care of you? Because you are soul masters of yourselves within Arda. You are too great. You are higher than we are. You are greater than the elves. Um, I'm uh, not quite at the end of my slides, though I got closer than I thought I would. Uh, we're going to come to an end here in a second, but I just want to end with this last idea. Um, this is one of the things that was really striking me as I was going through these passages before class today. Um, Think back to the Book of Lost Tales. Think back to the beginning of Tolkien's mythology. Where Tolkien's mythology began was this sense of loss, right? The Book of Lost Tales was designed to explain fairy stories, to explain why we still have the memory of magic and fairy and these things that are now lost, right? Um, why the, the air of some other place still lingers in some spots, right? Like in England, especially. Um, he was writing this mythology for England, right? This was the... So thinking about the relationship between humans and elves that it suggests um, from the beginning, I think, we can see in Tolkien's, like, there has been, Tolkien's mythology has from its very origins, I think, contained within it the assumption, the kind of framework assumption, that the elves are greater and the humans are later and lesser. This idea of decline over time, that the things of the ancient world were greater and, and the things that are now are much lesser. This thing that we can see so consistently throughout the Lord of the Rings, this 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 very recurring idea, this very medieval idea. That was that was of course the elves were greater than we. Of course they were stronger and mightier and could do way more things than we, and they have faded and diminished over time. So that that certainly the story of the elves is a story of loss and decline. But the story of the world, the story of humanity is a story of loss. We are so much less than the elves, right? The only thing that we have left is just, just the memory, just some stories, fleeting, confused, messed up stories about elves and how things were back in the grand old days, right? Think about Sam always wanting to hear, uh, you know, asking for stories of elves before the fading time, right? Back when elves were elves and, 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 and were much mightier, right? Um, that is, um, that is baked in to his mythology from the beginning. Um, and so humans have always been conceptually lesser, in a sense, right? They are the aftercomers. They are the replacements, 
right when the elves fade and the humans come and and there goes the neighborhood right i mean there's always been that sense uh in the mythology uh I, again it like it, it has embraced the idea that the modern world i mean it's that you could almost say the mythology was founded on the idea that the modern world is sad, pathetic remnant, right, of the greater world that was because the elves are gone, because now humans are in charge, and look what we've done to the place. Um, I bring all this up because in these passages, in this passage in particular, and the passages to come after this, this is the transition point right here, not just the tr- tradition, the, the transition point within the Athrobeth, but the transition point within Tolkien's entire mythology going back to the very earliest days. He is about to transform everything in his mythology to reconsider that fundamental idea. The, this idea that humans are not just the world's consolation prize after the elves diminish, but that humans may actually be greater in some ways than elves. That was not to be thought of. That was not part of the story at all, I think. Um, But now he's reconsidering that. Now he is going to transform that, and Finrod is going to have his mind blown. And I, when I read this for the first time, remember the blowing of my own mind. And I look forward to discussing the mind-blowing passages that are yet to come next week when we return. Um, uh, we will continue. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I hope to get near the end of the Athrobeth next time. There will be more to talk about, of course, as we'll talk about the tale of Adonel, for instance. Um, But um, we will see next week when we return to this. So I will leave on this and this transitional moment uh, because there is stunning stuff to come, of course. Thank you guys for joining me for another awesome discussion. I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed discussing Morgoth's Ring with you guys, and it's one of the things I've been most looking forward to getting back to uh, as I return. It has been one of the chief consolations of returning from vacation uh, that I could return to discussing uh, the Athrobeth with you guys. Um, Thank you guys for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.